When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the All Music Books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Graham Thompson, the author of Cowboy's Song, the authorized biography of Philip Lynott. Welcome, Graham. Hi guys, how are you? We're good. Uh, as I mentioned before, I'm a huge Thin Lizzy fan, and I, I read your book and then reread it for this interview. You know, it was equally as fascinating the second time around, and Phil Lynott was a very complicated guy. And I have to ask, did that, that start with his unique childhood? Yeah, I think it did. Yeah, you're right. He was a very complex person. You know, I wanted in the book to write about the whole life of Philip because it was, you know, a very complicated and complex existence, really. You know, his mother, Philomena, was was a runaway. She was an, an Irish teenager who ran away to England in the 1940s, and she had a child with Philip's father, uh, Cecil, who was a, an immigrant from Guyana in South America. Uh, I know we associate Philip so much with Ireland, but he was born in England. And his parents didn't stay together. So he had this very itinerant early life in the north of England, going around different places, until he was eventually sent back to live with his, his grandmother in Dublin when he was about seven. So, the, the, you know, there's lots of confusion about his status in his family. He always had a very complicated relationship with his mother. It was very intense quite conflicted they were very close but there were also lots of secrets and there were people in his family who never quite knew that he was her, her son so yes a very very complicated early life that i think did feed into a lot of his insecurities and a lot of his you know personality quirks and a lot of his decisions when he became a grown man and while there were incidents in ireland you write that as a schoolboy lynette began to take on quote more irish more dublin persona and he put it, and I found this fascinating, that his color was simply there, like having big ears. That's a pretty enlightened take, especially for the times, no? Yeah, I think, I think it was. And I don't know how much of that was kind of with hindsight. I don't know how, whether it actually did feel like that at the time or whether he did feel perhaps more alienated than he, than he let on. But I think we have to remember that, you know, being black in Dublin in the 1950s and 60s was so unusual. It was such an incredibly white city and it's such a white country. That there was no sense of him being a, a threat. There was no real antagonism towards him because of his color. Uh, you know, it was more exoticism. It was more like being a spaceman. It was more like someone who had kind of been beamed down from another planet. You know, there's a lovely story that, you know, the kids in primary school would, would line up in the playground to touch his hair because it was, it was something so alien to them. So obviously it was there. I mean, that sense of difference was definitely there. And I think Philip's, you know, extreme Irishness and his patriotism and his his affinity to Ireland culturally later on was probably a reflection of that. It probably was a, a way of him showing people that he could fit into the country, that he wasn't a spaceman, he wasn't an alien. He was actually as Irish as, as the next person. So they're probably it probably played out in quite complicated ways. But it was later when he went to London that he said he felt more overt racism. And he probably made the best of it. I think, you know, he probably decided I can either 
go with this and kind of accentuate my difference and play with it, or I can sort of shrink away from it. And he definitely did, did the former rather than the latter. And as you mentioned, he, he was very well read, and particularly with Irish history and mythology. And, you know, in hindsight, that would really reflect in his lyrics later on. Yeah, definitely. You know, very interested in mythology. And again, I think that's, that's a reflection on, on his, his self-image. You know, I think that the idea of the kind of heroic loner goes throughout Irish history and you know, these great uh, mythic heroes that Irish history is, is kind of founded upon. I think he saw a little bit of himself in that, this loner, heroic, poetic, romantic. You know, you hear all of that, certainly, in his writing. And I think that drew him towards a feeling of Irishness. You know, I think mm. that that kind of was maybe the bridge that he walked across to feel that, yeah, I am part of this culture. I do recognize some of the people on which this culture has been founded. And I can kind of feed myself into that and I can use it for my own self-identity. And you see a lot of that in his writing in the 70s in particular. Yeah, and early on in your book, you recount a Hot Press article uh, that was in 1983, which is later on. But uh, there's a great quote from Lionette. Can you recount that? Well, yes. Yeah, I mean, he said, and this is this is towards the end of his life and his career, but I think it shows a, a really astute kind of self-awareness of what he was trying to do. And he, he talked about wanting to write uh, contemporary Irish songs, songs that summed up what it was like to be Irish and what Irish music was like in the 70s and 80s. And I think that's really significant and, and really astute, you know, that this idea of writing new Irish folk songs, new myths, which is exactly what songs like uh, The Boys Are Back in Town are, really. And his and the Thin Lizzy version of Whiskey in the Jar, you know, he succeeded really way beyond his expectations, I think. Wild One, all these songs are folk songs. You know, they, they are contemporary folk songs. They're telling us what it means to be Irish now and how it relates to being Irish back then. And, and that lineage of Irish writing and Irish history, which was so important to him. That was his aim. There's a statue of him in, in Dublin. You know, that's what, that's what happens to folk heroes. They become mythic. And I think he succeeded in that. And, and, he, was, and, and he was aware of that. And I, I like that quote too, because I think it shows that he actually was very aware of what he was trying to do. Yes, I, I have a picture of that statue, I am uh, proud to say, that I took when I was there. Uh, but he really got into music, you know, quite deeply and exploring all different kinds of records and reading poetry and getting into fashion. And in short, you know, his journey into a rock star has begun, and he does become a rock star. He was always a star, really, you know, because he was so different and he stood out and people would look at him when he walked down the street. He was always the focus for attention. He always pulled that focus. And so I suppose it was probably just a, a question of how he was going to fulfill that. Would it be through music? Would it be through fashion? Because, he, you know, he did lots of really beautiful fashion shoots in the late 60s where he's uh, hanging out in beautiful clothes with beautiful women and getting photographed around Dublin. And, and some of those appear in magazines at that time. And you can now see them online and there's some really lovely pictures. He was doing, you know, doing poetry readings. So he was, he was kind of, he was in the arty, bohemian, late 60s culture in Dublin that was mixing with students. And so he was kind of trying to find his focus, but he was also, of course, uh, making music. You know, he had his young band, the Black Eagles, when he was at school. Then he joined Skid Row. So, it, you know, he could have been many different things. And it's a lovely melting pot at that time, Dublin. There was an awful lot of things going on. But it was music that really... Uh, drew him as I think you know inevitably it would looking like that and having those kind of ambitions I think it, it was inevitably going to be music that would end up being his his vocation 
He did love to look good, though. I mean, those pictures, he's very self-aware in a lot of those and looks every, yeah. every bit the rock star. So he starts playing with Brian Downey and guitarist Eric Bell. And in 1970, they morph into what we know as Thin Lizzy. And one of the more fascinating bits of their story is their name and all its variances. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, this kind of relies on you having a, a working knowledge of, of the Dublin accent and how, how uh, pronunciations can vary. You know, the name is based on, there's a character in, in there's a, a, a British and Irish cartoon magazine called The Dandy. And, and there's, a, there's a robot in that called Tin Lizzy. You know, the Irish pronunciation of thin is, is tin, where you say tin lizzy. You know, originally that was the hard T sound was, of thin was kind of an in-joke. But it did result in quite a lot of confusion. For, for, for at least a couple of years, the band were being billed as tin lizzy, T-I-N, and also thin lizzy and lizzy. The character in the, in the comic is lizzy, I-E at the end, not lizzy with a Y. So there's various different spellings of it. In fact, this, this, the first single, The Farmer, they're, they're known as thin lizzy with a with IE at the end. So it was quite a confusing, <laughs> possibly but a quite a confusing name. And and yeah, if Phil Lynott had said the name of his band to you, it would sound like Tin Lizzy. That, that's how it would have sounded. So there was quite a lot of confusion in the early days. And Thin Lizzy is where Philip takes up the bass. He had sung in many bands. He'd played some guitar. But this is where he kind of takes off. And it's also uh, where a recurring love of communal party house living takes hold and it's here where philip starts to explore you know his some hedonism with alcohol drugs and, and of course women yeah i mean he was he was quite an early starter you know I, I mentioned before that band the black eagles you know even when he was 15 and at school he was he was going out maybe you know two or three or four times a week playing shows and, and playing concert halls and, and uh, dance halls and, and stuff around ireland so he'd already kind of got a taste of that but it was it was quite mild, you know. Drinking soft drugs were very much part of that culture. They were part of the the university culture, part of the poetry culture. But he took it further than that, and I think that was probably just his nature. You know, he was he was pretty macho. He was quite performative. You know, if somebody was drinking one bottle, he would drink two bottles. If somebody was taking one pill, he would he would take a couple, you know, or a handful. That that was just kind of the way he was. But there was always that streak in him, I think, that that was drawn to that. Whether it was just about getting as wasted as you could or whether it was something, you know, more deeply psychological in terms of trying to get over something or, or, or escape from something, it's hard to tell. He was a stoner, you know, he smoked an awful lot of dope and continued to. And I think at, at this point, that was mainly where his appetites lay. You know, he, he would just get up and, and roll joints. And, and I think you hear that in the early Thin Lizzy records, you know, they're, they're quite mellow in, in many ways, quite poetic. They, you know, Astral Weeks, Van Morrison's beautiful album was a big influence on him around that time. And there is that quite dreamy side of his writing, which I do like in those early records. Yeah, it's amazing. And almost all of the recording stories that you tell, at some point, Philip is there rolling a joint for, for everybody. So I can see where that was his thing. Yeah, I think every, every hotel he checked into, the road he had to leave like a quarter ounce of hash <laughs> on, his, on his pill, <laughs> like a chocolate. Wow. So yeah, no, his appetites were, were fairly legendary. So the band gets a record deal in 1970, and in January of 71, they moved to London to begin recording their first album. Why London? Well, I think, you know, there was no real infrastructure for making records in Ireland. They'd already really gone about as far as they could within, you know, less than a year. They'd released a single, they'd played a big show at a football stadium, and they'd been on TV, they'd been written about in the newspapers. And they kind of hit the glass ceiling, really. There wasn't an awful lot more you could do at that point. This was, you know, pre-U2 and 
And, you know, the, the touring circuit in Ireland was still set up for the, the show bands, which were the big, very commercial dance bands that, that would tour around the country. It wasn't really a rock scene. You know, England would be the logical move. And, they, you know, there was an Irish A&R man called Frank Rogers who, who, who signed them to Decca. He was kind of their local contact. To, in order to make a record in a good studio, in order to, to sign to, a, to a, a record label that was going to get you distribution and get you seen, you know, and, and to have any chance of succeeding, you really had to tour around the United Kingdom. So London was by far the logical move at that point. And they start recording uh, this record on a Monday morning, and by late Friday, the LP is done. That's remarkable. Yeah, I suppose it is. I mean, I don't know how unusual that would be for that time. It is probably still quite quick, but there were, there were no frills, really. Uh, they were a very tight trio. The songs had been bedded in live. You know, they, they played live a lot. There's not a lot of ornamentation in the studio. So they, it wasn't very difficult to get it all down. And this, it's probably also indicative of their status within the record industry at that time. You know, they're a new band. They're not particularly commercial. Um, they're a live band, really, at this point. So the process would be quick and fairly uncomplicated. You know, it wouldn't be a case of the record company spending lots of money in order to kind of uh, polish everything up. So, yeah, it went down reasonably, reasonably well. You know, there was a few, there was a few run-ins with the producer, but um, generally it was a case of playing them live and, and getting it done. And they do become a live band, and in Lionett's words, they were a trucking band, and they opened for tons, tons of bands over the next 18 months, and even a prison chapel, is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah they play everywhere, uh, and they support everybody. You know, they support David Bowie, they support The Faces, they support Canned Heat. You know, they're getting five pounds or ten pounds. You're playing to really small audiences, often, you know, in, in double figures, sleeping in the van you know it's a real rites of passage really of, of, of a young live band that's trying to make its way and yeah they played a, a prison chapel you know that the van was uh, was loaded with weed um, <laughs> Eric Bell told me that you know the smell would have knocked you out but uh, they managed to get in and I think it was a very strange experience you know they played to to these very well-behaved prisoners who came in very quietly silently sat down responded very passionately to the music and then stopped and, and silently walked out again quite quite a bizarre experience but that, you know, those are the days when you're learning your you're learning your trade you're learning your chops you're you're you're, you're tightening up and because there are three piece you know um you know it's philip playing bass and singing eric bell playing guitar brian downey playing drums it has to be tight and i think philip certainly you know as a bass player i think came on a lot in that time it's hard it's quite a hard thing to do play bass and sing at the same time and i think um although they didn't make an awful lot of commercial headway during that time. It was probably quite an important period in the band. Well, one of the funniest stories in your entire book is is the London period and Philip's confusion with the underground trains. Can you tell that story? <laughs> you know, we, we think of Philip Lynott as being very worldly and very, you know, this very kind of dyed-in-the-wool rock star. And, you know, this is a lovely example of his youth and his innocence at this time because, you know, when he came to London, he thought you had to put out your hand to stop the train in the underground like like you would for a bus or a taxi you had to hail it rather than just it would stop anyway and you would get on so in some ways they were still kind of small town boys uh, and uh, you know ingenues in the industry um and dublin and london you know they're both capital cities but they're very different places you know dublin's more of a village and uh, everyone knows everyone else you know he was he was smart he was savvy but there was that learning curve of just getting used to living in this much kind of bigger wilder metropolis we're speaking with Graham Thompson, who is the author of the book Cowboy Song, the authorized biography of Philip Lynott. 
During that first year in London, they released two albums and an EP without much headway. And in a studio rehearsal, Lionet begins toying with this Irish folk staple, Whiskey in the Jar. And it proves to be a game changer, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible, really. You know, this song always dates back to the Dubliners had played it in the pubs of Dublin. It's, it's an old staple. And this was something that, you know, they'd messed around with in rehearsals really as a joke. It, you know, it's a happy accident. And, and it, 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 it's a very scratchy version. I mean, even if you listen to it now, there's no bass. There's this kind of rattling acoustic guitar. What makes it really was Eric Bell. You know, there's wonderful uh, overdubs on the intro and the, and the hook. But, you know, prior to that, they regard it as something of a novelty. And of course, you know, they're young, hip guys. They don't necessarily want to be associated with Irish folk music, which they see as, as quite regressive and something that belongs to another generation and, not, and another culture. Um, but the record company hear, you know, hear this sort of demo version and they hear something in it um, that is kind of extraordinary. And, and, and as once Eric Bell has added this incredibly lyrical guitar part, you know, you can hear what is so special about it. And it does kind of fuse the past and the present. It is this very interesting mix of uh, Irish history and Irish um, progress. And, and, and that folk rock thing was going on at that time, you know. But they've all, you know, it's funny, they always regarded that song with great suspicion. Kind of second iteration of Thin Lizzy with after Eric Bell left, and never never played it. It's not on Live and Dangerous. It's it's a sort of radio staple and it's it's a beloved song, but something that Philip always viewed with a lot of ambiguity. I think it's ironic, though, to a certain generation that is probably the definitive version. You know, yeah, it's strange. It is it is interesting, and I think there's also always that thing that it's not their song. You know, they didn't he didn't write it. So although they absolutely stamped their personality on it. I suppose you always feel a little bit ambivalent about a song that is not yours, that you didn't write. Maybe that played into it a bit as well. Well, it blew up and it was huge. And, and they tour with the likes of Slade and Susie Quattro. And it's this tour where they really, really begin to, to hone their stagecraft. And in fact, they learn an awful lot from Slade, who they had initially mocked from the wings of the stage. You know, I was surprised reading, uh, researching for the book and doing writing it how you know, how conscious the change, change was in Phil Lynott's onstage demeanor. You know, I didn't realize that he had been really quite shy and enigmatic on stage prior to this. He wouldn't project. He would, he would look at his feet. He wasn't using the bass as, as a kind of focus point like, like he did later on. There was no real eye contact. It was very, very kind of laid back and very vibey, but it didn't have that energy and connection that we associate with the band at their peak. And, and you know, their manager even would prepare things for him to say. Know, little lines that he could feed so he would talk to the crowd and this you know the Slade tour really blooded them in that respect Slade were the biggest band in the UK at that time they were massive they had a really big rowdy fan base like a football crowd um like a bear pit going you know playing before they came on was a really hard task and you know watching them seeing how Noddy Holder managed to engage with the crowd and the first few nights Thin Lizzy getting a very rough reception pretty much getting you know booed off the stage uh, I think brought you know brought it home to Philip that he really needed to adopt a much more physical, charismatic presence, uh, something that was much more in your face, much more confident, much more starry. Yeah, that's when the showman starts really. That's when he quite consciously changes the way he engages with an audience. It's also the period where the iconic chrome scratch plate on his bass is born, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, because Naughty Holder had all these mirrors on his hat. You know, he, you know he used to wear these huge kind of top hats which had little small chrome mirrors all around them and, and the, you know the, the light would dance off that and make it would be a really interesting effect so this first he had a little mirror that he hung on the end of his base 
I think it was from a bird cage, you know, these things you put in a parrot's cage or something like that. And he would use that and the light would bounce off that. And then he hit on the idea of using a chrome scratch plate on his base. And, you know, a, a minor tilt of the base angled towards the light and you could put these beams of light back into the audience. So it was, yeah, he was a, he was a smart guy. You know, he, he was always had his eyes and ears open. We see that right through his life, actually. And so he was he was watching and he was self-aware enough to know that, that a kind of step change was needed at that point. And he was very successful in that, as we know. Yeah. And, and it's, I was lucky enough to see them a couple of times here in the States. And that's the iconic image that that I remember is is that that mirrored scratch plate and the way that he used it. You know, and the audience would go crazy. You know, it seems he was always aware of image and branding. And he soon pulls an artist named Jim Fitzpatrick into the mix. And after that period, Thin Lizzy's record covers always had, you know, a certain kind of a vibe and a certain look that was well represented. What Jim Fitzpatrick was so good at was understanding that blend of, you know, Celtic mythology, cartoon graphics, machismo, myth. He he absolutely understood what Phil was writing about and that the lineage he was coming from. And as you say, from that period, from the mid-70s onwards, you know, the, the, the graphics and the music are really in perfect uh, lockstep. And they worked, very, they were very good friends and they worked very closely together. They lived together for a while. And so there was a real simpatico relationship between the two of them, which I, d I do think was was really quite significant, yeah. Because of Whiskey in the Jar and because of all this touring, uh, the record company is pushing for another single. And, you know, Eric Bell, a founding member, he cracks and starts drinking and drugging more. And it culminated in a Belfast New Year's Eve scene that ended his tenure. Yeah, it's kind of leading it's leading up to this. But Eric Bell and Lionel have a fight in Germany before that. Eric Bell's very unhappy for various reasons. You know, personal life is, is, is a bit of a mess. He feels they're moving away from their their blues roots. You know, he's a blues, he, blues guitar, great blues guitarist. That, that was his DNA, really, as a, as a musician. I think he feels fulfilling the expectations of Whiskey in the Jar, leading them to, to make some compromises. And so, yeah, they play this this New Year's Eve uh, gig at Queen's University in Belfast, and he's he's drinking all day. This is his hometown. He's a Belfast boy. I think there's an added pressure there. Yeah, it culminates in this kind of spectacular meltdown on stage where Bell leaves and basically ends up kind of hiding under the stage on some gym mats. And there are three pieces. So you, you have, you know, it, it's pretty embarrassing. It leaves Phil Liner and Brian Downey in the lurch. You have a drums, bass and, and vocals, which is pretty difficult to work with. Tough sell. Yeah. So, you know, and he's thrown out. The next, I mean, there's no real, I think, you know, speaking to Eric about this period, he clearly was going through a very difficult time. And, and these were different days. You know, there wasn't a lot of sympathy for mental health issues or, or struggling with certain issues in your life. And, you know, it's a great fault line in the Thin Lizzy story. You know, after Eric Bell leaves, they, become, they really do become a different band. You know, they have the same name. But that kind of hippie, loose-limbed, stoned, poetic tenderness that, that we hear in those early records, you know, didn't quite survive. It, you know, they, they became someone, uh, something quite, quite different after he leaves. They did, and the two guitar classic Lizzie lineup with Brian Robertson and Scott Gorham eventually emerges. I think uh, at this period, Gary Moore also stepped in for a little while, as he would throughout mm -hmm. their tenure. Phil had a premonition, you know, about guitarists being trouble, and so he said he had a reason for a two-guitar lineup. Well, yeah, and the, <laughs> the reason was very simply, this isn't going to happen again. I'm not going to be left on stage looking like an idiot um when my, if one of the guitars decide guitars decides to leave so it was a kind of belt and braces 
a backup approach to have two of them there. But also at the same time, you know, it, I think you could hear, you know, how difficult it had been. Some of those early songs, you know, you hear a song like Little Girl in Bloom, which I, I love very much. It's really impossible to play with a three piece with one guitar player. Um, there's overlapping lines, there's things going on. So I think he did also realize that it would be very difficult to expand or evolve the band and the sound of the band with just one guitar player. And if things were becoming more energetic live and a bit more impactful in, in the live arena, then you really needed a lineup that was going to enable you to, to do that. And sort of in the careful what you wish for uh, category, I mean, Brian Robertson, he's 18 at the time. And in his own words, he's a little uppity. Scott Gorham is from California and embroiled in petty crime and hard drugs. It sounds like a match made in heaven. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, two contrasting styles, two um, big personalities, very different personalities. I mean, Brian Robertson, you know, he's classically trained. He's a virtuoso on many instruments. He's a real music head. But he's also very, you know, he's volatile, he's confrontational, he's, as you say, very young. Scott Gorham is is more of a kind of a bit more of a laid back, organic personality, goes with the flow, rootsy, probably a little bit more um, together, shall we say, mm-hmm. uh, in, in terms of its personality, a little bit older. But somehow it works, you know, after a little bit of toing and froing, you know, the, the, the lines between lead and rhythm guitar become blurred, really. They, 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 they come up with this twin melody line. Uh, lines that, that I suppose we've heard before, you know, with bands like Wishbone Ash, you can hear a little bit of that style, but Lizzie really make a virtue of it and it, it becomes a signature sound it, it, and it really expands the ambition of the group. I think it plays into an, a more ambitious uh, writing from Philip Lynott because he understands what they can do and they're more able to reproduce their records on stage. So, I mean, it's always, and, and we see it through the history uh, in the next few years, it's always volatile, it's always kind of provisional and always susceptible to things going wrong, that, that combination of personalities. But musically, somehow, it just worked. It definitely worked. And, and you know, they appeared live first, I think, in this forum in 74. And they make a couple of mediocre records. And then 1976 is Jailbreak. And that's really the first, I would say, fully realized album of that twin guitar sound from start to finish. Would you agree? Yeah. I'd say so. I'd agree with that. I mean, you know, the fighting and nightlife, the records prior to that, there are some good songs on on those records, but it doesn't, neither really works as a unified record and you can hear them not quite getting to sound that they're after. And they're actually quite close to being dropped. You know, this is a new record company, uh, a couple of misfires. So Jailbreak, you know, the, the third record they made was really a make or break uh, record for them. And, you know, they, they get, they have the right songs, the right producer in, in John Alcock, um, they have the right artwork. Jim Fitzpatrick, you know, hits a bullseye with that. Everything just gelled. And of course, they have the right song in The Boys Are Back of Town, which you know didn't present itself initially as a great breakthrough song, but became that. So all these elements combined on that record to really move them up several gears, I think. Yeah, and to many people, The Boys Are Back in Town is Thin Lizzy. And fair enough, but you write, and it's really fascinating, uh, the greatest, most enduring legends aren't created in the doing but in the retelling. Can you explain that? <laughs> yeah. Well, certainly, you know, certainly in the States, I think Boys Are Back in Town is the one song everybody knows. Maybe in Europe, the knowledge can run a little bit deeper, just, just on a general level. But I think in many ways, it is the quintessential Thin Lizzy song and Lionet song, because he was this great myth maker, this great storyteller. And, you know, a, lo- a lot of that is about being in the bar room with your mates, 
and remembering what happened uh, and, and telling them things they already know, but each time just embroidering a little bit more. And he was a great embroiderer of the truth. And in this song, he, you know, he elevates what is a fairly mundane, mundane story, really. It's just, a, you know, a bunch of mates who've been away and are coming back to the level of legend. You know, they're, they're, they're legendary characters, they're uh, mythic outlaws. He does that by the way he talks about them and their exploits. And it's all about remember that time, remember that girl, remember that night. You know, maybe you do, maybe you don't remember it, but the excitement lies in the retelling and the layering of the stories. And it's something he did quite a lot, actually. But, but I think in that song, it really is particularly potent and, and it engenders a communality that we all kind of get we all remember the, our own times where we felt that kind of excitement about going out or things that happened in our lives that we can all and tell each other about and of course whether it truthfully happened like that or not it doesn't really matter you know it's, it's about the sharing of the experience that's that's so important very well put and it is probably their biggest song here in the states but one of my favorites on that record is a classic ballad that gives your book its name and that's uh, the cowboy song yeah, oh, I love that song too. And it, it, again, it's um, musically so rich. And I think that does, you know, really does um, exemplify the band, how they worked at that time and, and what those two guitars could do. There's so many great melodic lines in, in, in those guitar parts and in, in those songs. And Cowboy Song is certainly up there. And again, it, you know, it, it exemplifies Lionel's self image the outsider, the heroic loner, the, the lady killer who. You know, comes to town and slopes off back up to the the plains. You know, and and I think it's quite touching, quite moving about the way he he sees himself and songs like that. Yeah, definitely. So they really tighten up their live show. The boys are back in town, breaks top forty in America, and then Phil gets hepatitis. And there are various explanations, most center on what people would probably think. You write that quote professionally and personally. The long term effects were profound. Absolutely. You know, this is the start, I think, of the kind of curse of Lizzie really kicking in where everything seems to go wrong at the wrong time. Boys are back in time is breaking the top 40. The tour was expanded. They're supporting Rainbow. They're going to go and play some big East Coast shows that, that are going to be quite important. And then Philip gets hepatitis and they have to come back. Uh, they come back to the UK and really their impetus is stalled and before they really make the headway that that song was kind of promising. And it seemed to me to, to kind of be the beginnings of, of Lionet dabbling in more dangerous waters. You know, by now he's got a got a fairly regular cocaine habit and it's the start of shooting up heroin, which is not a habit at this point, but it's the beginnings of that. And, you know, you know, I was told that he did get hepatitis by sharing a needle. It's a serious illness, hepatitis. You know, it really it damages the liver, it damages the immune system. It made him more susceptible to his appetite and it made him more vulnerable, I think, once the partying kind of started up again, you know, because he did have this mythic image of being indestructible and this idea that he could take anything and run a mile. And I think, so when he starts getting back into that groove, I do think his system probably wasn't as able to cope with it as it had been maybe previously. And to his credit, though, he did stick to a no-partying program religiously at first, and this causes Scott Gorham to refer to him as a pain in the ass, which probably can't help. <laughs> Yes. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say religiously. I, mean, I think, you know, he tried his best. He did clean up his act, I think, pretty well. But he was still smoking some weed and a little wine and champagne. But certainly the hard stuff he swore off for, for a good while. And yeah, it cramped the band style because they were all pretty hard party goers. And it wasn't just Lionel leading from the front and everyone else sort of rolling their eyes. You know, they, they were, they were apart from Brian Downey, perhaps, all kind of in the thick of it. So yeah, having the singer sort of swearing off all that wasn't wasn't much fun for them, I don't think. 
We're speaking with Graham Thompson, the author of Cowboy's Song, the authorized biography of Philip Linet. At this point, the band finishes up their next record, Johnny the Fox, and it did well. It was 1976. And you mentioned the Lizzie Luck, and uh, on the eve of their first ever headlining tour of America, what happens? Well, yes, here we go again. So, yeah, as we said, Brian Robertson, uh, a, a volatile and combative personality. So you know, on the eve of them flying out to, to their first headlining tour in America, he gets into a, a fight, a bar fight in a London club, cuts his hand, isn't able to play guitar. So they have to cancel uh, again, you know, before they even get there this time, they have to cancel the tour. Uh, Lina is absolutely furious about this. But, and again, it's more, you know, it's more stalled momentum. You know, the album is just coming out. So they're supposed to be touring Johnny the Fox. And a lot of goodwill squandered. You know, I think you, you do that once. You know, people might kind of give you the benefit of the doubt. You do it twice. You, you know, you start to look a bit unreliable and unprofessional. And I think they're not picking up on their opportunities. But then Queen, you know, Queen, the band Queen, who are riding very high at that point, you know, offer them a support slot for their tour early in 1977. So there's a sort of silver lining to that. Gary Moore steps in, as he always does, to take Brian Robertson's place. So, so they kind of get a second wind. But there's no doubt that, yeah, the, the way the cards are falling at this point isn't very helpful for them. So that Queen Thin Lizzy tour uh, was the tour that I saw first, and it remains, you know, top of the heap as far as double bill goes. But you mentioned Freddie Mercury, and uh, when he sees how good the band is, he does something. Well, he feels intensely threatened by by the reception Thin Lizzy are getting. I mean, they're a really, really powerful unit at this point, and um, even though they're they're swapping guitar players, you know, they're still really hitting their marks. Freddie Mercury gets very concerned about this because he's worried that the support band are stealing the, the limelight from Queen. So he does everything he can really to, to hamper them. You know, he cuts their sound check time down to the minimum. Sometimes you don't get one at all. He restricts their stage lights. He restricts where they can move on stage. Standing in the dressing room where they're playing is too much applause. Get them off. Get them off now. The, you know, so which is, I suppose, all a backhanded compliment. It just shows you how good they were at that time because Queen were no slouches either. Um, as a live band at that time, as I'm sure you remember. So, so yeah, they're they're very much worrying the headliner. But there's also, you know, Freddie Mercury teaches Phil Lynott other things as well. Phil saw how Mercury was treated, and he saw how he behaved as a star, and he, he fancied a little bit of that for himself. So I think there is a sort of bit more of a, a diva-ish quality coming over Lynott after that tour as well. I guess that's kind of common with, you know, a lot of bands. The headliner all of a sudden says, ooh, turn that down and no lights, you know, and they, and they I don't mm-hmm. think that was unique to Queen. I don't think it was, no. No. After this tour, it's back in the studio. Bad Reputation is released. And to my mind, it has two classics, which is Southbound and then the all-timer Dancing in the Moonlight. Yes. Brilliant songs. Dancing in the Moonlight is such a, a lovely example of Philip as a pop writer, you know, someone who grew up on pop music, loved pop music, that soulful, street-walking, finger-clicking vibe on that song is so, so addictive, I think. And Southbound, this beautiful, slightly ominous ballad, I think, someone who's struggling a little bit with the internal conflicts of, of his life at that time. It's a difficult record, you know, they, they were recording in Toronto, they, they, you know, they were a cocaine band by this point, and they couldn't get an awful lot of cocaine in Canada, so they were they were drinking their way through it. It's produced by Tony Visconti, which is an interesting choice. Who was, you know, at that point, obviously making all those great David Bowie records. And at one point, he actually threatened to leave because they were so out of control. So the management flies over from London to sort it out. So, and the, you know, the status of Brian Robertson is tricky because at the start he wasn't in the band after that tour. Then he's back in the band, but he's he's well, he's playing on the record, but he's not really a full member of the band. He's kind of like a session player at this point. If you look at the cover tells its own story i was gonna say yeah so 
but I, I love it. I mean, it's it's a, it's a it's a kind of lean direct record. It's it, you know this is punk now. We're in 1977, and there's an element of them being really cognizant of that. It's it's short and sharp, and it, it attacks very well. And as you say, it's got that you know that great story, another great story song, another great retelling of myths, and that great line about chocolate stains on your oh, pants. It's classic. A classic line line that just throws it kind of throws everything out a little bit. And I love that he did that as a lyricist. You know, he didn't always take the easy choices. He, he always threw in something that made you think. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I like that record. But like a song like Opium Trail, it's kind of flirting with the idea of a doomed relationship with hard drugs and a, a doomed self-image, which I think is starting to kind of come in and overtake the optimism a little bit. Hmm. Well, Live and Dangerous, which is certainly their biggest album, was supposed to be a stopgap measure. And, you know, it turns into their masterpiece. There's a lot of stories about that record and its overdubs. What can you tell us about that album? Yeah, I mean, it's like, it is like their greatest hits record, isn't it, really? It's just that it's a live record, but it's it's essentially become their greatest hits album. I agree, it's just, you know, it's a magnificent piece of work. But, you know, is it a live record or not? It doesn't matter. You know, I spoke to Tony Visconti, and who recorded that record, and you know, he told me in the end, you know, they fixed most of the vocals. So most of the vocals are new. Most of the bass parts are overdubbed in the studio. Most of the guitars and drums are, are live, but there's been some overdubs and fixes there. And I think it came from the fact that, you know, playing bass and singing live is tricky to do with 100% accuracy. And, and, you know, I was told that Lionel listened back to the tapes and wasn't really happy with his bass playing. So they started overdubbing some of the bass and then it kind of just grew from there. <laughs> into well let's just fix this and make it sound as good as it can i think if you hear the raw tapes from that tour and the raw tapes from that show you, you can tell the difference but you know not that much it's still you know it's still a, it's still a pretty extraordinary live band and, and what it does do is it captures the atmosphere of seeing them at that time i think it's, it's an extraordinary kind of testament to also the relationship between a band and its audience which was something that was very special within lizzie they always talked about their, their fans as being supporters, like they were a, a sports team or something. There was that really, really tight bond between them. And I think you can hear that along with all the great music. You can hear that on that record as well. Ironically, they would chafe at having to play the same set every night, wouldn't they? Well, they got into this weird situation where you're, you're touring a live album. <laughs> it should be the other way around, you know. Um, but the live album was so successful that it, it actually became a thing in itself. So you end up replicating the set list every night because people wanted to hear those songs. And because, you know, in the States, Lizzie weren't a huge band and maybe everyone didn't know the back catalogue. You know, a lot of the songs they were hearing them for the first time in some senses. So, yeah, so they kind of got stuck playing that set for a year, 18 months, two years and got into a bit of a rut. Yeah. Unfortunately, things do go downhill after that record. Eventually, Brian Downey leaves. Phil is, as you mentioned, intrigued with the punk scene, and that meant hanging out with Johnny Thunders and Sid Vicious, so not good. I mean, he, I think he always had that fear of being left behind, Phil, you know, Philip. He always wanted to, to feel that he was on trend and understood what was happening. And he was still a, you know, he was still a young man. He was only in his late 20s. He wasn't, and somehow Thin Lizzy managed to kind of they sort of transcended that sort of uh, sneering of punks to older bands. They, they, they kind of made sense in the punk era. But yeah, he was hanging out. You know, he played on the Johnny Thunder solo album. He jammed with the Damned and Elvis Costello. Uh, he formed the Greedy Bastards with Steve Jones and Paul Cook. He was hanging out a lot with Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen. And, and you know, so, so he was part of that scene. And at times it was quite an excessive scene. Sid and Nancy would, would come over to... The house he shared with Chalky Davis, the photographer, and they would, you know, they would shoot up in the bathroom 
Bob Geldof would come, they would write songs together. So it, it is a period where you get the sense of the kind of lifestyle starting to overtake the productivity and that, that things he's getting involved in probably were starting to make him a less successful writer and musician. And he would eventually put out a couple of, in, in my mind, a mediocre solo albums with a couple of great, great songs. You know, I don't know if that was a byproduct of that because some of the Thin Lucy stuff of that period is, is sort of weak, comparatively speaking, as well. The solo albums, are they are patchy, but they're quite interesting. And, you know, he's experimenting with soul and funk and R&B and he's using new textures and sounds and working with young singers and producers, perhaps trying too hard, you know, to be to be current. I think he sees the hard rock thing as maybe being slightly passe. And, you know, we're now in the kind of age of technology and new romantics and certainly over in, in this side of the water, you know, that that's what's happening. So... And he always had a great sense of melody, you know, melody. I think he was always able to write a great tune. He had a very adaptable voice. It's a very tender voice in many ways. So it, it could work in, in lots of different settings. So you hear him trying to, to be relevant, and, and, but probably also trying to keep himself interested. But it's unfocused, I would agree. Uh, it doesn't have a real laser focus. And he's probably spreading himself too thin because Thin Lizzy are still an ongoing concern. And he's not writing enough good songs to service everything at that point. And your last part of the book is called Sun Goes Down. And that's a very poetic title, especially, you know, since we know how the story ends. Although it was a shock. Do you want to take it from here and just, uh, you know, it's not pretty, but eventually the sun went down. It did, yes. And you could kind of see it. Uh, it was a slow setting, but as you say, kind of inevitable. And it was very, you know, it was very hard to write, even though you know it's coming. And there's so much waste. Um, and I think there's so many other ways it could have ended. You know, I was very much at pains to write in the book that he wasn't someone who was destined to end this way. He was a very energetic, positive person who really, really made the best of his circumstances. You know, we talked earlier about where he came from. You know, he really transcended a lot of those difficulties, um, at least on the surface, you know, made a huge success of his life. But I do think there were things that always niggled away at him that, that, were, that were difficult for him to deal with. And... In the end, it's a heroin story, and a heroin story uh, rarely end well, and they're about pain. And I think the, the, you know, the pain of his childhood, the pain of, of giving up one of his own children when he was very young, repeating the circle of his own circumstances, uh, you know, the pain of not being able to make his marriage work, to see his children as much as he wanted. And I think the pain of not being able to sustain the success of the band or keep Thin Lizzy together. You know, I think that all accumulated into someone who was who was really desperately in, a, in an awful lot of pain at the end. You know, he ended Thin Lizzy in 1983, and I think almost straight away realized that it was a mistake. Uh, the band was very, was a really important part of his identity and who he was. And I think not to have that really hit him very hard. He was very invested in that idea of being the strutting rock star, being the top of the pole, and being the man who could do anything and take anything. And I think to admit his predicament and seek help was too difficult for him. And he was, you know, he was also prey to, I think, to some quite unpleasant characters around him right. uh, at that time. So there was an inevitability to his decline, which was kind of wrapped up in his personality, wrapped up in his circumstances, wrapped up in his upbringing. But he couldn't sort of back down and and try and and resolve some of these issues. So yeah, very sad. But I I wouldn't like it to detract from a lot of his achievements and. A lot of the people I spoke to, you know, were very keen on that being accentuated. You know that it, it, he was a he was a winner in many ways. Your book is amazing. If any fans out there, it's it's definitive, and uh, I congratulate you on that. 
I would also be remiss if I, if I didn't mention, uh, you have quite a few music books, all of them I want to read, by the way. There's George Harrison and Johnny Cash, Kate Bush, Elvis Costello, and then the one that I've recently put into my shopping cart is your early Willie Nelson book with a forward by Keith Richards. So if I can make it through that, we'd love to have you back. Graham Thompson, your book, Cowboy's Song, the authorized biography of Philip Lionite. It's just amazing. So everyone should go out and pick that up. Thank you, Steve. I'd be delighted to talk to you anytime at all. It's a pleasure. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Graham. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.